keep tugging at our heels Watch us high step and be a highlight reel Of how high we get The ghost riders off the ramp How we live defies death Put a conscious in the genre box Stamp a certified fresh Bad boys beyond cheap depths You couldn't fathom what we plan to do next Turn the music on and said Power bomber suplex Welcome to the Free Range Basketball Podcast I am Kyle McEwen You can find me on Twitter at RotoKyleNBA And I'm joined today by Matthew Who you can find on Twitter at Reverend Romulus the Free Range Basketball Podcast is about finding common ground in our love of basketball before having more conversations about politics and religion. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast wherever you listen to or watch it. And if you'd like to be an official producer of the show, you can send in support through PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App at Kyle McEwen 16 You can also subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash FRB. For anyone that rates, reviews, or contributes as a producer of the show, I'll give you a shout-out, and I will teach you how to do the Cupid Shuffle, which is just a, not really hard to do, so I'm not really giving you much value, but um, it's what I've got to offer today. All right, Matthew, thanks for coming on the show, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is there anything that you think people should know about you before we kind of dive into talking about basketball and everything else? Um, I'm just a normal dude. I'm not a, you know... <laughs> Not some big social media uh, presence. I'm just a guy who lives in Oregon and is a big Portland Trailblazers fan and uh, maybe have some slightly unique uh, political views compared to, I think, what most, uh, at least, Twitter basketball personalities are, you know? Oh, all right. Well, I'm interested to hear them because I don't know what they are either. Um, but let's do that. Let's get into talking about let's get into talking about basketball since you're already yeah. trying to let everybody know that you're a Portland Trailblazers fan. I guess did you grow up playing basketball? How did you become to be a basketball fan and specifically a fan of the Portland Trailblazers? Yeah, um, I've lived in Oregon my whole life, and I mean, I was never much of an athlete I always tried to be like when I was a kid but it was never going to happen so I just was a fan from <laughs> from an athletic sport uh, point of view uh but in Oregon you know we really professional wise that's all we've ever had is the trailblazers and so you know I I watched some college ball here and there and I grew up down near Eugene so the University of Oregon was you know something I watched but really when it came down to it it was just the Portland Trailblazers and I grew up you know, when I was a kid, it was the like Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter era. So it was an easy thing to be obsessed with. And so it just from then on, it was nothing else, you know. Even as a kid growing up in Michigan, Clyde Drexler was one of my favorite guys, maybe just because of the rhyming with his name with Clyde the Glide. Yeah, exactly. But- but he was also, you know, a big jumper, a really super athletic guy, always had a great smile and just. Yeah, he was an easy player for, for me to root for. And I probably fell in love with him just by getting his basketball cards and of course. and everything. So um, so what you said you grew up kind of close to Portland. Uh did you well, is it was in, it is it more of I a rural in, area? Yeah, I grew up in Springfield, Oregon, which is a smaller town, just right now. It's just it's like right across the freeway from Eugene. Okay. Um so it's about two hours south of Portland, but I uh, but then like a lot of people do when you in Oregon when you want to work doing something besides, I mean, at that point when I was a kid, it was like you either worked in the lumber industry or, or at the college. And that was about it in that area. So uh, I uh, moved to, to Portland and I've been here 
close to 20 years now, I think. All right. So, yeah. And have you been able to go and actually watch the Blazers in person then enough times or? Yeah. Yeah. I got a, I've been to a, a couple of games over, over the years. Um, it's, I moved. It's expensive to go to those it's games though, because it's so popular. Yeah. It's There's popular. no other it, professional sports teams, right? Yeah, no, not at all. Nothing. And so I, I mean, we have a junior league hockey team uh, called the winter Hawks that like outsells every other junior league hockey team in that, in their league, because it's just another semi-professional athletic, you know, event to go to. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but no, it's expensive. And we have all the stories from like family members who lived up here who had like season tickets at the original Memorial Coliseum. And it was like insane what they're, I mean, and it's like they were to them, it was nosebleeds, but now it's what basically is a like hundred level seat at the Mm -hmm. Rose garden for, you know, dirt cheap. It was, it was insane what the pricing was back then. So they tell the story. Oh, we used to, we just walked down we go to every game for like five bucks. And that was that. (laughs) And this was like during the beginning of that whole era too. Like that's, it was after that point, after, you know, the Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, you know, days, like it, it never was affordable again. No, I, I, to give people a little bit of perspective on that, my brother and I were lucky enough or we, we had decided, okay, we're going to, we're going to splurge a season, season or two back and actually buy, uh, get something scratched off our bucket list with my brother and I both being huge basketball fans. We always wanted to sit courtside and we'd never really been able to afford it or been willing to justify spending a certain amount of money. Well, luckily it was the middle of the week for the bucks. People still weren't really buying into the fact that, you know, Giannis was as the MVP. It was his first MVP season two years ago. And, uh, people still weren't really around town buying into the idea that the bucks were title contenders yet or in that conversation. And, uh, the, the lowly pistons were coming into town. It was the middle of the week. We found some courtside seats for like 300 bucks Yeah. where, and then later that same season, my brother and I were in Oregon and one of our buddies wives was like her, her, her sister or whatever works for the Portland trailblazers and ended up getting us some, tickets that were like 16 rows up, but still kind of in the middle of the court. And I was looking at, I was looking online on StubHub or whatever. And I was like, holy crap, these are more expensive than the courtside seats yeah. that my brother and I bought for like, you know, just over 300 bucks. And it just kind of blew my mind. But again, as, as I pointed out at the beginning of, uh, of bringing up this conversation, it's, it's because of the fact that you guys don't have other options there and the demand to go to that premier uh, sporting event for a pro league is that's like the only option. Yeah. And they have, I mean, when the, you know, major league soccer started up, they Portland got a team and the timbers and it's, it's insanely popular. And again, it's like they, the day they put tickets on sale, that was the last time anyone could ever get a ticket. Like (laughs) it's, it's just, you're on a waiting list. It's, like insane yeah. and it's packed out every and it's a smaller stadium but it's packed out every single game and well not right now but uh, every single match until you know sometime yeah. in the distant future well the other cool thing about portland and i've only been there like th- three two or three times but um the fact that it 
is a basketball town because there aren't really other options. Yeah. When you go to the bars afterwards, it's packed with Blazers people and basketball people. And, you know, it chicks dressed up in Blazers gear, which mm-hmm. is just like, if you're a basketball dude looking for a chick, like it was, I felt like I was in heaven. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, like I can, I can talk to all these girls about things that I don't, you know, I don't have to worry about whether or not they know basketball. They do. And, and they, uh, yeah, they will actually, they definitely will talk basketball with you. Oh, dude, it's so I, I love um, Portland. If I made one mistake, though, that was being one of the first times I was in an area where there was uh, legal edibles and I partook way too much <laughs> before the game. And I barely remember it. I mean, I have like little spotty memories of seeing Stanley Johnson really up close. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's you know, it's 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 the, the wild, wild west still uh, out here. Well, now you guys legalize psilocybin, which I've read some some uh some Johns Hopkins study about that how that can help people with depression or overcome yeah. like cigarette addiction and that's kind of stuff is super interesting to me because if there's legitimate treatments out there for stuff that is in all things that I've read relative you know pretty safe in regards to consumption it's super interesting to me that people could overcome some of those uh deep rooted emotional issues or um addictive type things that are in many ways a a mental state of mind or state of mind that you could use something that's natural to help overcome that. It's just super bizarre to me. I I don't have a lot of experience with it, but it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm this guy who I grew up a goody two shoes and I've never really even experimented in anything, but from my point of view, if you can make something like that legal and use it as an alternative to some horrible big pharma drug, that's going to be 10 times as dangerous and way more addictive and not really do the thing it's purported to do. Like I'm, I think it's great. Exactly. I'm just super open-minded to the idea that you can find these things that then also people can produce these things in their own home. They don't, it's, it's not manufactured. Yeah. So that that's really intriguing to me too. Anyways, let's talk about the Blazers kind of uh, yeah. their current roster in depth. Uh, who Who's your favorite player here or, or are there guys who you wish maybe weren't on the team or guys who you would even, even to put it in a kinder way, guys who you would say, you know, we have a redundancy here. It, why aren't we using some of our depth of talent at certain positions to pursue a way to fill holes that we seem to have in, in other places. I mean, I mean, I guess it would be, you know, the cool thing to do to not say that Damian Lillard was my favorite player on the team, but how it's, it's hard to not just say that's the, you know, the, the person to root for on, on the Portland trailblazers. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty ideal from a fan perspective to have someone who's that not just good, but also 100% invested in, the team and the city and just the entire culture, like he's into it. And like, there's, that's pretty ideal. And that's not even back in the Clyde days, we didn't have that with Clyde. Like Mm -hmm. he was amazing and he was super fun to watch, but he does not come back to Portland now that he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so you just, you have to, you have to root for Damian Lillard, but on the second, on the, you know, if I had to pick a second player, like Yusuf Nurkic, man, that guy is fun to root for. He's got such a cool game to to be a big, nimbling big man who just kind of bounces all over the place, even though he's got such good size. 
and then to see how he can both protect the rim, block shots in, in, in gaudy ways, and then and then be a distributor as well, or at least you know a second or third option as a distributor on the court to know that the ball's not just going to go into him and then you know something exciting could still happen that doesn't maybe involve him scoring it. Yeah, so. and see my my favorite Blazer of all time was Arvidas Sabonis. So like to have another giant lumbering, you know, Eastern European guy who can pass and and knock people around it's it's great well and they still let they let Yusuf take the ball off the rim on rebounds mm-hmm. and bring it up right yeah yeah there's some i mean there's been i mean it's hard because it's been so long since we got to actually watch him for any extended period of time with him being hurt but um that yeah there were some good moments where the they ran the offense through him and it really freed up especially since you know Wing depth has been a thing that hasn't really existed in, in this uh, on this team for a long time. Yeah. Um, be, but because of that, it freed up those tiny guards to to make some plays that they wouldn't normally be able to. Well, and you bring up a good point about the structure of the, or the, the structure of the roster and the fact that it's 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 amazing how successful the to me how the Blazers have been over the last several years with Damian Lillard with CJ McCollum as their main two guys simply because this is the era of LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, those big wings where the Blazers haven't I mean Al Farouk Aminu that's yeah. been your main big wing I guess maybe Mo Harkless Mo Harkless a little yeah <laughs> which is just it's it's not you say those names and it's like, yeah, those aren't necessarily, they're good role players maybe on a good team. But if, if those are your two primary forwards during the LeBron era, do you really have a shot at a championship? I wouldn't, I would not project that, but the Blazers have been in that conversation or at least pushed their way into contention. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely a a fun team to root for, even though sometimes I, I look at, the way they've been constructed and think like, how can you not find like the most important thing you need to find in, in this modern era? It's yeah, it's rough because I mean, it should tell you how big of a difference it makes when they trade for Trevor Ariza and it's like a noticeable difference when he joined the team, just because you have not a, not, not an incredible wing, but just a functional wing. Someone mm-hmm. who's taller than six six, who can you know stop someone of medium size from getting straight to the rim, and also occasionally hit a three pointer, and it just made a huge difference. So imagine if you had a person, you know, slightly above average in that position, what might happen? What do you think uh, CJ McCollum's role on the team should be going forward? Should he get all of the backup point guard minutes? Should the team look to be moving him so they can find a better small forward type piece. How do you kind of look at CJ McCollum? Yeah. I mean, I love CJ, but yeah, I mean, obviously the idea in the ideal world, you're moving him and you're getting somebody back, but who, who is that person? I just, that's always been the, I mean, that's been the discussion in the Portland area for years. I mean, ever since CJ sort of hit and you realize he was good, um, people wondered how can Dame and CJ really play together and they've done a great job of it. I mean, obviously the production's still there and it's, it's amazing. And they've often had 
their offense is often right at the top uh, of the league, but I would love to say that they could trade him and bring back this great wing player. But I just, it's always uh, about getting pennies on the dollar, right? It's always about you trade away CJ. And I just don't think you're going to get the same level of wing player back because what team needs CJ? I mean, there's a few people out there. There's, there's always been the, you know, CJ for Aaron Gordon trade and people sort of talked about the CJ and something for like Ben Simmons, you know, dream trade. Maybe that's there, but are those things realistic? I They I sound know. great in, yes, in some exactly. contexts. I mean, of course you still have the caveat with uh, Ben Simmons and the fact that how do you fit somebody without his shooting, but Yusuf Nurkic, has he actually shown more of a propensity in your eyes to legitimately be kind of a stretch big? Every year he says, I mean, every year that's the talk and it just hasn't shown up. I mean, I think in the bubble he hit more than mm-hmm. he had before, but the year before that was it, he was shooting threes. And then I think he, I mean, he hit two, I think in that the season before or the season he got hurt. Um, so, I mean, maybe, but I, I think he can do it. I think he can hit it, but I think it's a couple of years before you consider that an actual like threat, like that someone's going to come out and guard, you know? I, I love the Blazers roster, so I'm just going to keep coming at you and asking yeah. for your opinion on guys. What do you think of Mario Hazonia? Is he somebody who you've seen enough and you just don't feel like he's somebody you want to continue to try to develop on the team? Or do you think that Mario is a, a legitimate piece that deserves to kind of continue to try to find his way on this team. I wanted, I wanted Mario to be good so badly. Like I was kind of excited when they brought him in. I, I mean, we've all seen some of the crazy New York, like blocks he, on LeBron James. Yeah, exactly. And, he blocked LeBron to yeah. win the game. Exactly. Awesome. All, and he's like, six, he's like six, nine, six, ten as a guy who's like a mobile wing. I, he, there's a lot of reasons to want, you know, to, to talk yourself into being excited about what you yeah. could be. And I just don't, I don't know. I think that we're not like, this is not the first team that fans have talked themselves into thinking Mario Hazonia was going to be incredible. And I just don't know that it's going to happen. I, he's going to be on the team. So it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Cause I, he's not declining that player option mm-hmm. uh, for anything. I mean, the reality is he could probably go to Europe and make a ton of money. Um, I, can he do anything above a minimum in, in the NBA? I don't think so. And do you, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the year that he just takes off and he's like this amazing power forward slash point guard, but. Well, what do you think his problem is? Do you think it's not being put in the right role or do you think it's not taking advantage of the opportunities when he's been given them? Yeah, I think it's to take advantage. I mean, they tried to use him in like as a facilitator this year they really did. His shot just did not show up. And uh, he his shot didn't show up, but he also didn't play the facilitator when he should have. He that ball went to Mario Hazonia, and you know you knew it was going into the air. <laughs> like you knew it. Or he was driving to the basket and doing something insane. And like one time out of ten, it was like incredible. Mm-hmm. And like just magic happened. But the other nine times where it was a little scary. And, be, and I mean, we had that with, the thing is, we had that already with Al Farouk Amino. 
like the chaos engine was strong with Al Farouk. If he put the ball on the ground, you were terrified, but it might be amazing. But the flip side of that is that he provided this level of defense that was really amazing. And you're not getting that from Mario. No, not at all. Uh, besides that one block on LeBron. Exactly. Um, we all hope. We all think it's coming back. It's gonna be that's gonna be him 82 games a season. What do you uh what do you think is gonna happen with Anthony Simons uh progression? Is he was last year kind of a fluke and just a bad year because there was so much else going on in that wing rotation? Or, mm-hmm. you know, like I guess can he be the kind of good player that a lot of us we're projecting him to become. I mean, I, I feel like it can't be worse than it was last year. I think technically like, like statistically he was maybe the worst player in the NBA. Um, and yeah, I said it, it's, it's yeah. great, you know, uh, but I, I think two things like he just, you can see the skill there. You can see it and yep. you, you hear it from multiple different, you know, places from front offices to players to players on other teams that he's got it, but it just, maybe it was a confidence thing. Maybe it was just too much too soon. I also, because Gary Trent Jr. really like figured it out this year, that took minutes away from Anthony when you have, you know, a guard the same age who is hitting everything he throws into the air, like you're not going to, it's hard to justify giving minutes to Ant. Right. I, I, and Anthony Simons is more of a guy who should have the ball in his hands or with his skill set, you want him to have the ball in his hands trying to make make things happen or to score off the dribble, uh, predominantly shooting. Um, and Gary's more of a just catch and shoot guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that he talked about that this is, you know, what little – interviews we've heard and seen the, that, that, that talk has been coming out that he's working on facilitation and that kind of thing. And, you know, not just being a score first guard. And so it'll be interesting to see if that kind of becomes something this year. But that's tough too, because again, if Damien doesn't have the ball in his hands, you either want the ball in CJ's hands or if Yusuf is healthy, Yusuf's hands as well. So it's, it's hard to find, there's just not enough balls for people to put their hands on. Um, what about uh, what about Carmelo's fit with the team? Did you like that? I did think his addition was one reason why Anthony Simons might have struggled a little yeah. bit because like there just wasn't enough shots. And Anthony Simons seems like one of those guys who he, he might need to heat up a little bit. You know, you might need to let him miss a couple shots so that he can make a bunch in a row. Yeah, that there's a lot of players on the team right now who need the ball in their hands and. That's, I think, why Gary Trent had so much success because he doesn't. He doesn't need the ball in his hands to be effective. Um, and M- Mello was great. I mean, how can you complain about Mello this year? I mean, what else was going to happen? Yeah. What, who else was going to play that position? I think it was the perfect the perfect situation because he's he's on a minimum. He You have absolutely no one else to play that position, and he – came in and and you know he's obviously not old mellow but well i mean he's old and he's mellow but he's he's not you know he's not going to do what he used to do but he did what he needed to do and and was a super pro and like super friendly and positive and the you know yeah there was no bad there were whereas in past stops we almost immediately started hearing 
media narratives about complaining about this or that, or, oh, there's, there's some rumblings that so, you know, Carmelo's not happy with his role. You didn't hear that at all with the trailblazers. They were smart to give him minutes once they got him and they didn't bring him in until they needed him. But that's also understanding who you're bringing into your team and what to expect. So that's, that's good on the team for recognizing like, this is the personality we're bringing in. We need to treat him a certain way. Otherwise it may become an issue. And from a fantasy perspective in regards to Carmelo, there were nights where he was putting up like two blocks a game, like frequently and stuff like that. And you're just like, what is going on with Carmelo Anthony? But get into a good situation where you're happy. It's going to good things good things happened. Yeah. And the, the Blazers just didn't even, they literally didn't have anyone at the power forward position, like getting rebounds until then. So that was a <laughs> huge, that was like a huge thing. Like someone would like grab the ball, yell an obscenity at everyone <laughs> around him. And then like, you'd still have the ball. Like the other team wouldn't have it. It was a novel concept that hadn't really been tried yet this year. I'm sure everybody, anybody who's listening to this podcast knows exactly what you're talking about. Yes. But um, <laughs> yeah, whenever, pretty much any time Carmelo gets a rebound, he screams, get the F out of here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, every single time. Like it's which, going into the bubble, you're like, how are they going to deal with that? There's no, like, you can hear everything. Yeah, <laughs> there's no I, crowd noise down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best things about him from uh, from a from an outsider fan perspective. Um, what about your other power forward option? Uh, Zach Collins. What, what do you think is going to happen with him? Was he just, was it was he last year just kind of a write off because we were dealing with, he was dealing with injuries the whole time or maybe so. I mean, is he a power forward? That's the big, like the big mystery. He, they want him to be a power forward, but should he just be like the backup center and with a little bit of power forward minutes? Um, I mean, I like Zach. I think he's great and he's shown some stuff. I think there's been a couple of like defensive, you know, showings for him that make you think that he could be something really special on that side, you know, of the ball. Um, Do you think he can guard on on the perimeter? Like I see, that's the thing. I, I don't, I mean, better than, better than Nurkic can, you know, but um but he still comes across a little stiff and yeah, standing so upright and stuff like that. Like he does. I mean, he's, he's a tall dude, so it's, he's going to look big all the time. But like, yeah, when I watch Zach Collins playing defense, I'm still kind of like powerful. Like I don't, I don't really love him as a solely as a center. He's more of a, as you were talking about kind of a combo forward yeah. center, but and because think, he can't, and he kind of wants to be a rim protector too, which is, oh, he wants to be a center. Definitely. Yeah. But and I think that's weird that that's his desire. But I also love to hear that because there's so many players who are share the contrary view where they're like, "I don't want to be a center," and it's like, "Dude." Oh, well, I mean, you're, we had you're the guy Marcus Aldridge here for years, and like that guy should have just that guy's the perfect modern era center, and he just mm-hmm. wouldn't play it. He didn't want anything to do with playing the center position. Yep. Um, what about what if they ended up bringing? LaMarcus back. Could that be a thing where they fit LaMarcus and Nurkic together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know how it works now. There, There's just not like the salaries to make trades work. So maybe it would have to be after this next season. And is LaMarcus still LaMarcus at that point? Um, but you don't like, you don't dislike him or like as a necessarily or anything uh, like I mean, that. You don't have any- I think the attitude is, has drastically changed from when he first decided to leave and it was just like he can die and 
all his family can <laughs> be buried in a, a hole somewhere and, oh. and a curse upon his household for yeah. the next 10 generations. Now people... Hey, you watch your negative energy words. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah, he... Uh, he, I mean, I, the attitude has definitely changed. I, I would, I would welcome him back. I, I liked yeah. watching him play. I mean, that was, he was good. He was on, I mean, he was one oh. of the best Blazers to ever play. And it, how can, why would you not want that on your team? You know? Yeah. It's not, it's sometimes frustrating to see one of your better, your best scorers or one of your better scorers who's got the ball in his hands all the time, taking those super deep two point shots, but it's like, well, he hit those. And yeah, exactly, and he was <laughs> over amazing. And over at again. It. Yeah, and he was. I, I, I watching a, as being a fan of uh, Rashid Wallace on the Pistons, a guy who would play with his back to the basket, do a lot of those fadeaways that you're just like, wait, what? That's it's indefensible. And then you yeah. watch uh, Lamarcus Aldridge, and and you're you you've got experience with Rashid because he was on yeah. the Blazers before he was on the Pistons, and just. That that back to the basket, shucking and jiving with your shoulders and leaning and all that kind of stuff. Um, Lamarcus still has a lot of the same game in some respects in regards to using his body so well to create that little bit of space. Oh, it's no, nah, there's it's it's it is almost a tragedy that the modern game doesn't have more of that. Or, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. Um, you can still, I guess, you just go back to YouTube and watch. Uh, Watch the old school highlights if yeah, you want to get your, exactly. your your post post moves love. Um, any other Trailblazers stuff that you want to talk about or anything that you've been thinking in regards to this offseason um, as far as what you hope they do or what or, you know, things that you hope they might change going into the, this uh, this new season? Well, every year. I think that this is the year that they're going to do something big, like just make some shocking trade or sign some amazing guy in the off season or move way up in the draft or trade out of the draft and bring back, a, you know, another star player. And it, it never happens. So this year I pretty much just assume that they're going to draft their draft where they are at 16. They'll use their MLE and bring in some kind of, you know, forward help. And because I think that's all they're going to do, it means that like monster trade is coming and CJ's gone and we're getting Giannis probably. Right. That seems logical. <laughs> um, man, I, it would, it would actually be fun with, for me to just sit and go through all the possible CJ trades that you might be able to have, but there's we're not so many, there's yeah. so many, but why would the other team do Almost any of them. Well, I, see, I look at it and I go, "What? What team wouldn't want CJ? You? I, I think he's about as close as you can get to Steph Curry without having Steph Curry on your team because yeah. of his his awesome handle that doesn't get talked about, his unconventional shot, which is as weird and scary as that may be at sometimes to see him putting up such wild shots. They go in, he shoots efficiently for the most part, mm-hmm. and that's really hard to defend when you don't know where the hell a guy's going to shoot from or how he's going to shoot. Good luck trying to defend that. The, you know what the real problem is? It's, it, it's not that who wouldn't want him. It's that what the value that the Blazers view 
for him is never going to match up with what other people like Neil Olshay likes his dudes and CJ is his dude. And he rarely ever trades anybody away. In fact, everybody that he signs save for mellow, even in free agency is like one of his dudes. And, um, either he drafted him like when he was with the Clippers or he traded for him when he was, you know, it's like mm-hmm. they all are connected and I, it just would take something monster for him to trade CJ away. That's been, I think this, the general opinion is that they're not like in his mind, if he's trading CJ away, he wants back that insane star level player because, and I think that's where the, that's where it becomes difficult. Like who's going to give up their star to get CJ. Right now, unless you're just making a, a, uh, a play where you're saying other people are undervaluing this guy, like saying, okay, we're going to go get Aaron Gordon. We're going to make that trade because we already have Damian. We have Gary Trent jr. And we're going to start using him as our starting shooting guard. We're going to get Aaron Gordon because that gives us a legitimate guy to put at either of the forward positions who can actually guard LeBron James and maybe do some work on an Anthony Davis, those guys that when you're trying to build a team to beat the champion, that's Aaron Gordon's. I, I love that people poo-poo Aaron Gordon and 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 deride him. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he doesn't show up in regards to fantasy the way that a lot of people would expect. But like the tools are all there, and he's shown in the past, even if it's floundered a little bit at times or been inconsistent in regard to his defense, the 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 amount of athleticism and strength that and size that Aaron Gordon has as a combination, like that's what you need. Yeah. He'd be ideal. I mean, and we've known he'd be ideal for a long time, which is why it will never happen because (laughs) that's not how the universe works. (laughs) Uh, One of my other guests said only, only sits deal in absolutes. So <laughs> sorry. Yeah, you're right. I'm uh, sorry. I, I have, I have hope for you guys to get, if not Aaron Gordon, at least an Aaron Gordon esque player, yeah. um, not the same defensively uh, and more kind of in the way of, I'm not saying this well, that for people to understand Daniel Gallinari, um, he's a free agent. Mm-hmm. He's looking for a place that he would fit. Well, you guys kind of look like that might be a spot especially if he's willing to accept just the MLE because he wants to go to a place where he feels like I'm still going to have a huge role, but I'm not going, you know, I'm willing to take a discount in what I get paid to try to compete for a championship. So uh, would you, yeah. Would you like having Daniel there or would you say, you know what, just bring, bring Mello back cheap again? No, I mean, I love Mello, but like Mello's not a 20 point a game scorer anymore you know he can do it every once in a while but like you can expect that out of Danilo Gallinari and uh I think it'd be great I mean we no one would no one would ever ever stop anyone from scoring but the team would score like you know 140 points a game so it'd be great so we know that uh Yusuf Nurkic can put up gaudy block numbers for fantasy but do you feel like he's a legitimately good defensive center? Yes. I, I think you can watch the, when you look at just team defense in general, when he's on the court, it makes a difference. So like, that's always the, that's always the argument, right? Between him and Hassan Whiteside is Hassan Whiteside, like 
blocks the living daylights out of everything, but for every block he goes for, he also lets, you know, something get by him because he's looking for the block. And so I think that's the opposite with Nurkic is that he's looking to, you know, play within the, you know, the scheme for the defense. And you see the team defense, like, really go up with uh, with him on the court. And that's why we we were, like, one of the lowest defensive teams in the, uh, in the league this year because he wasn't on the court. And so there was a lot of talk from Hassan Whiteside about being defensive player of the year <laughs> this year, but I don't know that you can be defensive player of the year when yeah. your team is, like, one of the, I think, bottom three maybe at one point t- defensive teams in, in the league. Like it was bad for a while. It'll be really interesting to see where Hassan Whiteside ends up. I can't imagine him coming back to you guys just because some team will pay him a little bit more, but you guys could maybe get yourselves into some kind of sign and trade situation that could bring you back something. I don't know what something. exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's everyone, you know, every like fan mock, offseason involves signing and trading uh, yeah. Hassan Whiteside for somebody. So, I, I mean, how often does that ever happen? Last, It seems like last year we had like an insane number. Was that last year that we had like an insane number of sign and trades with like D'Angelo Russell and was it D'Angelo Russell? Yeah, it was D- yeah the... D'Angelo and Kevin Durant was the was the biggest one. And that yeah, was... Like, it was like literally the most sign and trades we've had in a season. It was like two or three. And maybe that maybe we'll have more sign and trades because of the the reduced salary oh, yeah. cap. So that could make teams more open minded to that because it's like we don't have any money. <laughs> so. I, yeah. Does anyone know at all what's going to happen this year? I mean, like, I mean, we know what's starting. We're starting to find out what's going to happen this year. But do we're, we really know? Like, what are no. what are people going to be willing to spend? What are they going to be comfortable doing? Not really knowing what the long term outlook is for yeah. the financial state of things. I mean, they're trying. You know, the te- the the league is trying to mitigate certain losses, or at least plan for certain losses in the future by having the players put eighteen percent of their salaries into escrow for the next couple of years, so that if there is prolonged losses due to a prolonged pandemic type situation where they're not having fans in we'll see what happens but we have some good news on that today in regards to breaking news around the nba we can kind of move into that section of the podcast uh sham sharania was reporting that the and i think zach Lowe might have wrote about it too in his piece on espn which was great zach Lowe did this over this like uh overview of the nba and where everything's at right now if you haven't read it it's like a five to 10 minute read. And it's just, it's a really nice, good primer for getting your, getting your wheels greased to get back into the NBA. Now that we're kind of moving past the election stuff, crossed fingers. Um, Are we? <laughs> reg- well, yeah. And I say that regardless of who ends up being, yeah. you know, announced as the winner. Um, But yeah, it's the, the, uh, some of the teams are at least making a petition to have, the suites open so that they can bring in some of their high level spending clientele or to say, Hey, look, we don't need to fill the stands if we still think there's this potential risk or whatever, but let us at least put people up higher who can socially distant watch the game. And and that just seems to make sense to me. I don't even know why they didn't really do that before, but that's also because, 
you could say we didn't know enough. Yeah. Um, which is fine. You know, being, being cautious with people's lives is, is okay from a certain perspective to me, even though people on Twitter would probably think that I don't think that, um, (laughs) I know, I know what you've tweeted. (laughs) Um, but, uh, okay. What else from a basketball breaking news today? Um, drew holiday trade rumors. What about CJ for Drew? Do you think just having a better defensive player there on the wing? Somebody because Drew, even though he's only like six four, six three, six four, he's not really that much bigger than CJ, but he is regarded as a more staunch defensive player. And the and uh, the Pelicans would often use Drew as the small forward on defense, and sometimes would even have him playing up on guarding some power forwards. Yeah, I think he's. I think he would be an ideal fit next to Damian Lillard. I think that they would their games would complement each other really well. And I think that, like you said, I mean, it's obvious his defensive uh, abilities are are noticeably different. Like the it's a it's the real deal. I would love it. I mean, I think I think there'd be a lot of you know like pushback for, you know, are you just you're getting another guard? Is that really what we need? If we're going to mm-hmm. make a big trade with CJ is another guard, but I, I'd be all for it. Cool. That's, that's uh, interesting to hear that you'd be down with that. Um, anything else from NBA that you'd like to talk about? Otherwise we can uh, get into the more contentious topics. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just excited to, I'm just excited to get the draft going and get whatever free agency might happen whenever it happens. And it looks like we're actually going to get a, 72 game season it's starting to look more like that now so i'm just i'm ready for i want to say normal basketball but i know that that's not what we're going to get right off the bat but at least more normal than it has been well you know they 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 say that technically training camps can open on december 1st but we're already seeing the i think guys are already a capable of getting together and practice yeah, people so, are getting together definitely yeah so if guys live in town then that's awesome because you maybe some, and that might actually help some of the players who we think are going to have minimal roles this year or who wouldn't even be in the rotation, step up, show that they've been using this off time to improve their game, hopefully. But then again, you know, everything's been shut down a lot of places. Maybe players haven't been able to get in and go to, go to certain gyms and whatnot. You would hope that their uh, place in part of their place in society with more money, being it maybe they'd be able to find yeah. something or even just build the dang court themselves. Well, I think they um, just announced that you can that they're allowing ten players at a time to yep. to work out. So I think that's a big deal. Like yeah. to actually be able to work out. Have, yeah, to have two teams out there or you know yeah. yeah to be to be able to do a scrimmage or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Um and they're doing all to anybody who would be concerned, they've got protocols in place for testing and, and, and whatnot. So I think they uh, showed with the bubble that they, Oh yeah. They're taking it seriously and they, they know what they're doing. I mean, I, I, I don't really have any, I didn't have any doubts beforehand. I wasn't as freaked out as a lot of people were when they decided to do that, but they obviously, I mean, at this point we sort of have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're, you know, putting the players in the right position. Right. And if, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, brother, uh, going to move into politics. Just going to ask you an overarching question here, and then we'll get let that take us where it takes us. But what's your political journey been like, Matthew, throughout your life? Did you grow up with certain values, and have they changed over time? 
Yeah, I was uh, raised in a pretty conservative family uh, and uh, in a logging town. So like obviously blue collar. And so my family voted Republican as long as I can remember. And by the time I got to voting age, um, I've always been a person who just sort of not necessarily rebellious. Like I don't feel like I need to rebel against things just for the sake of rebelling, but I also don't think I need to just do what is ex is expected of me just for the sake of doing what is expected of me. So when I, when it came time to vote, I you sound like a trailblazer. I know exactly. See, <laughs> we know, we know what's going on. Um, I, I, my first presidential election was actually the uh, Bush Gore election and I voted third party and not, I voted green party and not because, and I actually heard you talking about similar method, methodology uh, on a previous podcast. That was the year that Ralph Nader was running and there was a legitimate thought that he was going to grab 5% of the vote. Yep. And I was, I'm not a big green party guy and I, I, I probably would never have done it again, but in my mind, I was putting my vote behind getting a legitimate third party. Right. Now, the hilarious thing is I now I still voted Oregon absentee ballot because I was away for school, but I was living in Florida at the time. And so all of my like left leaning friends got really mad at me because they assumed I was part of the reason that the debacle in Florida happened because I didn't vote for I didn't. Why did you vote for Ralph Nader? You could have voted for Gore and then the whole problem would have, you know. Uh, but I voted for or in Oregon, so it doesn't matter anyway. Because right. no, like I don't know the last time. Maybe Which, maybe Reagan that a or did I usually? It's very unlikely a Republican wins uh, the nomin or n wins the electoral votes in Oregon. So, well, and where were you? I mean, back in two thousand, were you still voting back in your home precinct? Yeah, yeah. I just back went by Eugene. To, yeah, yeah. I just went away to school for. Uh, for a year. And so instead of like making any attempt to vote there, I just, you know, got my, my, I think my dad sent me my mail-in ballot. And yeah. Well, it. and the, the other, so there's a couple things that we could talk about there back in 2000 and to anybody who feels like the elections never get delayed. That's malarkey. If you lived through that, the 2000 election. Yeah. Yeah. That, that went until December 13th before Gore finally conceded to Bush. Um, I was that actually in the courts? I think it was like if it wasn't in the Supreme Courts, it was headed there. Or yeah, there's there at least talks about that. There was at least aspects of it that were in the courts. Like I think they were debating on what they could recount and how because they had to get everything was automated, but they had to like get hand recounts approved because of the infamous hanging Chad. Right. Well, apparently the the the. The, the ballots down in Florida back then, back in 2000, it was like a, a pull punch thing mm -hmm. where you selected all your, you selected all your different, uh, who you were going to vote for. And then you like almost pulled down a lever and it punched through everybody that you were voting for. And there were some hanging chads is what they called them. <laughs> little pieces of paper that just didn't fall off. Right. Or it, it led to ambiguity about which, which, uh, who, whose people voted for. And that, that was down at, what, do you remember what County that was? 
I don't remember the county, I, which is hilarious because I was down right. there, but I don't. It was. No, I, I don't. I'm not sure either. But it yeah, was. I, uh, it led to hand count, hand counting of the ballots, and we saw, you know, people arguing about that for six weeks after the election yeah. before we finally got a found out that uh, Bush the second was going to be. Uh, George W. Bush was going to be president. Yeah. Um, but, but so yeah, if 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 this drags out, it's not necessarily anything new. It's and, not completely and, abnormal. And it's also one of those things. It's I guess the reason why I'm bringing that up, making a point to talk about this at, at length a little bit, is to say like, don't let yourself get caught up thinking like, oh, I you know, don't let the anxiety of of a knowing something now stress you out. I mean, try not to at least, please. I had no expectation that this election was going to end in any way, but what is exactly happening right now. I figured it would be a long process. I figured it was going to be super close and we were going to, it was going to take a little while to get it all ironed out. So um, do you, do you consider yourself like someone who kind of lives in the weeds of politics or you try to keep your mind off of it, how do you kind of engage with it? Well, since that point, my political views have drastically changed. And I actually, part of this is because when I met my wife, um, this was her viewpoint. And so I was open to it. And I sort of started doing a lot of reading and, and research. And it fits sort of my attitude. Like as a, so I'm really conservative and I always like I'm you would consider me pro-life, but I also was not necessarily pro making laws about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a, which doesn't really align with like a Republican value. Right. Like obviously most Republicans are like, let's make a law. Let's make it illegal. Let's overturn Roe versus Wade, all of that jazz. Um, and so what I've adopted are i basically become like a hardcore anarcho-capitalist since that point. And so my basic viewpoint is I don't participate and not, I don't participate out of apathy, but I am anti the concept of the state. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should exist. And I think that the state only exists through a monopoly on violence over the citizens of that state and therefore anything that it does, it does uh, through violent coercion. So I don't cast my vote for anyone. And that's the same. I, it's the way I've sort of stuck to for the, since that point, that's the only uh, presidential election I voted in. And since then I haven't participated in any electoral politics of, of any kind uh, out of a, you know, sense of, what I view as morality, you know? So uh, are you saying kind of like the systems don't work for the people, so I'm not going to support these systems? I think the systems work exactly as they're intended to work. I think these systems are doing, I think they're working perfectly because the state is just designed to uh, give power to those in the ruling positions. And so that it's working. They have their power. They get to do what they want. And if you look at, you know, they create a system that makes you think like, think that you have power on one side or the other. They, they create two sides. You have your, your left side and your right side, and they obviously are different and they should, 
they should really work to fight against each other. And when we really look about, back at the history of society, have they helped us? Has the state helped us? Or has it taken credit for things that individuals have done and that individuals have accomplished that changes through society that would have ch- would have happened without the threat of violence towards those people? And I don't mean that like violence is never necessary. Like, obviously I'm not a pacifist. Like if someone comes to my home to threaten my family, I will use violence to protect them, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, so I don't think that's wrong. And I, 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 I don't think that, uh, but I think that that's not what the state does. The state, like very things that seem benign, um, parking ticket, right? I park somewhere that the state says I can't park. Um, so I get a parking ticket. Now, if I don't want to pay that parking ticket, what happens? I number of things, but what leading to, I get arrested. Well, if I don't want to be arrested and I resist, the state is going to use violence towards me. And if I refuse to submit to their violence, usually it, we, we know we can see the news. It will continue to threat of death. So really nothing is enforced. There's no, even at the most benign level, there's nothing the state can enforce that they can enforce without the threat of death. Um, what, what's, uh, I think a lot of people might hear your perspective and assume that it's like a negative bend. Whereas I hear it and I say, no, you're just trying to be realistic about the powers that are in control and how they, how they put their thumbs on people to, because from you, I wouldn't use the same words you use, but I think we're in some ways talking about the same stuff. I would just say it's all corruption. It's yes. there's a corrupt system made up of people who are essentially just because you're a senator, a governor, a, a whatever kind of politician. I look at you and I say you are the ruling class, and I mean that from a position of saying. <sighs> For one, like you're not going to get into those positions of power unless you're allowed to. Mm-hmm. You, you, I tried to get into local politics when I was younger, and the more I just a couple of steps inside the door and talking to people, it was immediately, "What can you do for me?" Or, "Hey, if you get into, if you get, if you win the spot, will you do this?" And I was like, "Dude, councilwoman, lady, I literally just." said I'm interested in becoming yeah. a council person and you immediately started trying to sell me on things that you want me to help vote for you f- vote with you for and I'm just like this is this is what it yeah. is it's, you're you're a bunch of salesmen and a bunch of people who are running games to get things that you want done and like that doesn't that's not public service to me like I think that the the and the reason I don't necessarily use the term corrupt system and I think you're right I don't actually mean any of this in a negative way is you sound like a very hopeful person yeah i i think that the system the way it is like i don't think it can lead to anything but what you see like and i mean i don't think that a far right-leaning government will lead to anything but totalitarianism i don't think a far left-leaning government will lead to anything but totalitarianism and i think we can see that through history i think we can see hardcore fascists dictators what that becomes and hardcore socialist dictators what that becomes uh and i think both sides will claim we're just not doing it right but 
I would argue that no, it's this is the nature of this is that if a person wants to rule you, no matter how good their intentions are, at first, the nature of the state leads them to needing to force you to do something. Mm -hmm. And even if they think it's the right thing to do, and we are seeing that right now, the perfect example of that is what we're seeing with the pandemic response. We are seeing states across the world force their citizenship to live a lifestyle that they are obviously not wanting to live. And there are some people who do want to live that way. They should live that way. There are some people who don't want to live that way. They should not live that way because only you can decide what is right for you. And for another person to decide what is right for you is, is immoral. It's fascism. Yeah. And we've tried to tell me how to live. Then you're not any better than everything you say that, that you're trying to fight against. And we've tricked ourselves into believing that if a person with an official seal on their stationery tells me I have to live that way, that it's okay because, well, we picked him, we voted for him, but I didn't vote for him. And we've tricked ourselves into believing that democracy is, well, it's choice. But democracy is still, is still, uh, it's still the band of thugs forcing the weak to do what they want. It's the majority we decided that majority rule means that the majority, if enough people agree one way, then violence is justified in forcing the other group of people to live the way that they want to live. And it, it's just, but we, we, we've packaged it in this idea of democracy and voting and civic duty. We hear that a lot. We, people are yelling at us. I heard people yell it at you uh, just yesterday when I was listening to the podcast about it's your civic duty to participate in this system. But, all, all life should be voluntary. And there's, I don't know if you've ever read any of the voluntarist writers like Carl Watner or uh, Wendy McElroy. It's a, it's a sort of a branch of anarcho-capitalism or libertarianism. And there's, that's just the idea that if, where we hear a lot of the, the ends justify the means, but their big saying on the top of every newsletter they released was if you take care of the means, the ends will take care of themselves. So you don't need to justify immoral behavior because you think it will end in something positive. You need to live your life in a positive uh, way in care of the rest, like caring for your fellow man. If you do that, you will get to the right ends yep. because the reality is, is that there's always going to be people who want to do bad things. Are we in the history of our country? Have we eliminated racism with, with uh, like laws saying it's wrong to be racist? Like, obviously we had the civil rights movement and you can see that the civil rights movement did not like eliminate racism in the South, did it? In fact, there's there's a lot of people who argue that the civil rights movement slowed down that natural progress because you and you radicalize people who weren't radicalized. And now I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying who cares if people are racist like that's awful. But I think the state gives power to people who are racist because now you have a racist person who gets into a place of power and he has more power than an average human being who's just a jerk. Right. Right. Yep. 
And that's that's always been my my viewpoint about it. Now, I that being said, yeah, I understand. I understand right now. I understand why people vote. I understand when we're looking at what's going on in the world today, why people were inspired to feel like they needed to do something and participate in in the system. And I won't I won't lie and say that there weren't moments where I was like, should I participate in this one? Like this one seems insane. Should I participate in this one? But my choices again are a person I really, really disagree with and a person I really, really disagree with. Yep. And so which like which things that I kind of agree with do I pick out that are strong enough to make me compromise the rest of my beliefs? Well, and it's there's that George Carlin put out that one of his bits was about like yes. the people who don't vote, anybody who wants to blame them, no, they didn't co-sign these two a-holes or any of these people to lord over them. And it's it's like when you look at things from the perspective of these politicians are just put into like the old being a baron or an earl or the king or whatever, why would you ever lord yourself or let somebody rule over you? I don't get that at all. I don't yeah. want anybody to be able to come into my house and be like, you know, I'm going to enforce prima nocta where I get to have sex with your wife before you do because you married her under my rule or whatever yes. crazy, insane stuff that people talk themselves into where they give up their own freedom of choice to some other person where it's like, how could that person ever make a decision for me that would be better than my own decision? And beyond the fact that like, if I'm going to make mistakes, I want to make them and not let somebody else, you know, throw the stick in between my, my, uh, my, my wheels and make me flip over on my bike. But so I, think uh, we've, uh, I think that we've, the, the pandemic has shown us that like that fear is a great motivator. Yep. And that's what, that's what the state has always used is, and they, and we see that throughout, uh, history where people seek freedom but then like in the united states in the early you know early years of it it was a pretty dang free country it was a pretty anarchistic uh nation even with a you know technically a ruling body they had very little influence over what was going on and the things that were used to gain more influence were always was always fear it was always fear of another nation invading or fear of uh another part of the country taking advantage over you and so people signed away their freedoms for this idea that this you know this big brother was going to protect them and it's always and it's always a little it's always the the metaphor of boiling a frog right like you don't throw the frog into the the hot pot because it will just like jump right out because it's hot you put a frog into a pot of water that's cold and then you slowly turn up the heat before it knows that it's been boiled and that's that's the nature of government is we didn't we don't start out with totalitarian we don't start out with that we start out with slowly taking away things that we're like oh that's fine they're just protecting me that's fine yeah, go look at the history. Of, everything's taken away. Yeah, go. Our economy pretty much dictates people's opportunity in life a lot of ways, or builds builds little pockets where it's like, if you grew up in this neighborhood around these people with this economic system, it's really hard to escape that because you don't have examples of people who have risen out of it, 
or you don't have, you know, or there's just not enough opportunity for you to step out of the muck. Your, your, your legs are buried too deep into debt at, at too mm-hmm. early of an age. And then you have a lack of hope or a lack of uh, feeling like there's options. So then you just stay where you are. You know, I mean, my dad, I didn't realize how much his third shift job uh, stocking groceries at the store that paid for the house I grew up in that, you know, supported us four boys and all that kind of stuff. Like I didn't realize how much that eroded his soul and his personality until he retired. And then I got to see like a different person because when he wasn't weighed down by the stress of going to a job he hated and not getting paid enough for what he was doing for his time, to be able to be anything more than a paycheck to paycheck person who was constantly worried about if I don't go to work, if I miss a day of work, I can't pay for my kids to eat. I'm going to, you know, I can't pay my house payments or I can't pay the car payments. That's a system that was created to keep us in stress, to keep people down, to keep people separated. And a lot, you know, that's the corruption that I see these big systems that, if you go and you follow it far enough back, go go find out what our economy actually is. Learn about how the dollar became uh, taken away from the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Learn about how fractional reserve um, banking system getting set up and and the ability for banks to just loan out money to anybody, not have to have money on hand all this kind of stuff. You learn about this corruption of that system and you, you kind of realize like, yeah, our government is just a bunch of gangsters running yeah. scams to try to take advantage of the entire world, not even just your state, not just your country, but the whole world o- over. That's why the lies, what, what kills me about a lot of people is like, and I think it's because they're, most people are good. Most people are trusting so then it's hard for them to accept that some of these lies that we've been fed over our life are are realistic. Like yeah. trying to tell people that pretty much every big thing you've been told to fear is a WMD, a, a false weapon of mass destruction. There, there's no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but we used it as a means to go to war. Yeah. And those people who lied to the American people the the news reporters who didn't question that those narratives or 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 fight back against them why is that ask those questions you get deep enough into it and you realize either they are corrupt they're a part of the system they're in the game and they get paid to shut up or yeah. or the system is so corrupt and these gangsters are so corrupt that when you fight back against a fortune 500 company these people have so much money that if they want to ruin your life or take it away in any mean, in any way that might mean they can, y- y- you're fighting a, you're fighting a mountain and you're an ant. Yeah. And, and I like, think the, when we, when we see these people, we see, we always, there's a, I think a, a fallacy where people look at billionaires and they see, they say, see, that's capitalism. <laughs> but how does that person become a billionaire? That person is literally a billionaire because of state sanctioned protections. No one can hoard that much wealth or become that rich without without something that the government does to protect what they're doing so that no one can compete with them. 
case in point, who until very recently was our richest man in the world, Bill Gates. Bill Gates cannot become a billionaire without intellectual property law. Because why would anyone pay $108 for Windows, which for most of its history hasn't worked that well? And we know, we know from the open source, like, Linux. Like, yeah, we know that people can do it better. We know that people could take that code and go, yeah, this is great. I'm just going to tweak this part, but that's illegal. And it's, it's a mindset that's hard for people to let go of that intellectual, like, but he should be paid for his work. Yeah, he should be paid for his work. But why should he be the richest man in the world for work that someone could do better? And someone, like, the person who invented the wheel isn't still making money off the wheel. <laughs> and, and there's so many creations that... And I say this as a person who, who tried to be a professional musician for a while. The idea that someone can write a song once and then make hundreds of millions of dollars off a hit like the Beatles can for doing like an afternoon of work. But someone can work stocking shelves real hard for their entire lives, making almost nothing. And the idea that that like our value systems, how we have value, how you, we place value on things is distorted by government interference into industry. So we like windows is really valuable because, because it's protected and no one can copy it. But we see, we see through real like industry. Like we see when somebody invents the, even things that are still a little protected, like somebody invented when I, when I, I worked at Sears when I was a kid selling home electronics and I remember when the first DVD players came out and they were a thousand dollars and the person who invented the DVD player and was the first to sell it got to make a thousand dollars a DVD player because he came out, they came out with the, the first one and then eventually everyone copied it. And now we can buy a DVD player for 10 bucks. Now the $10 DVD player that I buy now is a thousand times better than the thousand dollar <laughs> DVD player. Yep. And that's because competition uh, bred a better, cheaper product. Yep. Uh, but when we protect competition, we can protect those comp companies from competition. We allow them to just sit on one innovation and make money where no one else can, no one else can better that innovation. No one can participate in the furthering of knowledge or, or anything like that because we've decided that it's protected for some arbitrary reason it's protected. And we see that outside of just like simple consumerism. We see that in the same way that like, look at the election. Like why can't they count votes? Like, we yeah. live in an area of uh, we live in an era of high technology. You're telling me there's no way, no way that this system could be more efficient, but they don't have a need to be more efficient because they're the government. Well, Who cares? Well, they don't. They don't have to care what we think. Well, they get to do whatever they want, and they get to have this super inefficient system. Maybe intentionally. I mean, that's the thing. Maybe it's intentional. Right. Right. Exactly. Because if it was efficient, we would know what the heck was going on, and we would call them on something. So. Right. They, they thrust, uh, Rahm Emanuel said years ago, uh, he was, um, I believe Barack Obama's campaign manager. He was on his, uh, his, uh, staff when he was working, he actually ran Barack's, uh, cabinet, I believe. 
mm-hmm. for at least one of his uh, terms. And Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste. That's, <laughs> that's their, that's their, that's the system all the time. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you have chaos to confuse people and take advantage of it. We we're getting long. Are you okay with the time right now? Yeah, yeah I'm fine. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, there's this chaos. Somebody ta- speaking to the elections and not being able to count votes. I saw a, a kind of a blunt tweet, and it's maybe not a good equivalency, but you know, we can. Somebody said we can f- put spaceships or sp- spend send spaceships to other planets, but we can't count votes within yeah. you know within a reasonable amount of time or something like that. It's ridiculous, and and even like the some of the things that were put into place this year because of the virus situation that we've been living in. I'm not saying I'm like inherently against mail-in voting and stuff like that. You can build a competent mail-in voting system and you can probably speak to that living in, in Oregon. Cause don't you guys have a really great, that uh, mail-in voting system that's been used for a long time. Yeah. We've had it for a while. And I mean, is it great? Like, that's the thing. I, my basic nature is to not trust something that the government tells me is great and working really well, but it, it doesn't obviously doesn't have the problems that you're seeing everywhere else right now. Hey, uh, um, do you know, like, have you witnessed or, cause you, you say you're not actively actually voting necessarily, but like, have you been able to look at ballots or the process and to be able to discern for yourself, whether or not the, the chain of, I don't want to say the chain of command, but like, like, is there an accountability system in that or in the, in the Oregon voting system with the mail-in ballots or are there places where, things could be taken advantage of still. I think, I mean, there was a little bit of stuff coming out this year about people being realized, like somebody went on, I think, and cha- online and changed Mayor Ted Wheeler's vote. <laughs> like, because they knew his birthday. I don't, and I don't know how accurate, I'm not going to sit here and say mm-hmm. I'm looking to it real deep. But I mean, there's always a little bit of concern. And there is, I yeah. mean, there's always a little bit of concern that it can be manipulated. I think it is less likely to happen here just like because why would anyone manipulate the vote like it's it's never close you know what i mean like it's, yeah it, it just it just doesn't matter so um it's it's obviously more likely to happen in a swing state so that's why we're seeing it in swing states but i mean oregon is it's it's a big state and you guys have a lot of rural area and then mm-hmm. there's portland and eugene's pretty developed because of the college right now it is, yeah, not not as much when I was younger, but it's getting there. But I mean, Oregon's a very—it's a gorgeous state too. If you are going to visit a place in America and you're a basketball fan, and you you like getting into the mountains or seeing beautiful waterways, there's the the uh, Columbia River and everything around that. Just the gigantic trees. Oregon is beautiful. Yeah, probably um, the perfect location. It's an hour and a half to the mountains, hour and a half to the ocean. So. And you can drive down out of the snow and you'll from the mountains. And then you're like, wait a minute. Is, am I, did I just like pass through a time warp or some kind of portal into a different climate? What happened? Yeah. Um, it's it's, it's always been weird in Oregon because it is definitely like a drastic difference between the population groups in like Portland is Portland. And I often, there's a lot of people in Portland who've, who have lived in Portland for a while, but have only lived in Portland. They are not like born and bred Oregonians or even people who've lived in Portland their whole life. And they don't, there's sometimes a, they don't understand like the mindset and the difference that you get when you, you know, drive two hours South or 
and it's, there's a very different population in different parts of the state. And what you have is you have this tiny little area in, you know, one city that controls the. Have you lived in a for big the city before? The What's that? Have you lived in a big city for an extended period of time before? Because you said you grew up in, in the inner no, rural I mean, area. I mean, Portland's, let me think. Portland's the biggest city I've lived in. I lived in like the Orlando area for a while in Florida, but it's like, you know, Orlando's a different animal. Cause I think itself. I grew up in, I grew up in a, a medium sized city or a smaller city. Um, and coming back here and seeing the way that things are, it's way more mixed with in regards to the politics versus mm-hmm. just, just living back in, in Madison, Wisconsin for the last 10 years or living in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan or um, living in, when you live in these big cities that are really tightly condensed, it's you've always got people around you. The, you know, yeah. the, the maybe you can speak to it better than I can, but like simple things like there's a, a lot of it comes down to gun ownership, really. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you want like the, one of the, the easier con- uh, conversations to have there. Um, I'd never owned a gun before they locked down the lockdown earlier this year. But then when I saw they were going to start taking, people were going to start losing their jobs. I was like, desperation might set in. Yeah. I'm going to go learn how to, I'm going to go. I didn't, I didn't even really pursue a gun. I went to with my buddy who was buying a gun because he was going to go hunting out in Colorado. He needed something to protect him in case he was going to go for a hike and a bear walks up and, and whatnot. Like he's not even hunting, but he's out there with a bunch of hunters in Colorado and he's uh he like serves as like their chef essentially um that's how he earns his way being part nice. of the group but uh but he went to go buy a handgun to protect himself for going on these hikes out in the middle of the colorado wilderness and i'm standing there got a couple hundred dollars burning a hole in my pocket because i couldn't find a nintendo switch at the beginning <laughs> of the lockdown and uh <laughs> this is 100 serious that's awesome and I'm sitting there at Farm and Fleet in Wisconsin with him. And I start asking the, the kid that's working behind the counter. I'm like, you know, if I wanted to buy a gun for home protection and that, and that you know, worse comes to worse, uh, the world goes to poop and I need to start fending for myself, what should I buy? And he's like, a shotgun. And so he kind of walks me through that. And the process was super simple. Just had to have my driver's license. They did a federal background check. And the only reason it took as long as it did was because they had a bunch of people waiting to buy guns. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it was super simple. And then my, I had a friend who was a parole officer and he knew cops. So we all went out shooting guns with a cop and I was able to essentially get trained how to use my gun by somebody who was obviously very comfortable shooting a bunch of different guns, being a police officer. And, uh, and that was awesome. Cause I got to shoot a couple of different guns that day. I got to shoot a, an AR 15, which, you know, gets demonized in the media and whatnot. I learned what that was. Yes. Um, yeah, you can definitely kill people with it, you know, but like, it's also, but, yeah, but you can kill people with a lot of guns that our people aren't as worried about. Exactly. And, um, and it was also fun. <laughs> um, but one of the one of the stark things is I was talking to a friend last weekend and I shared with him the fact that I had bought a gun and he was like, oh, you bought a gun? You're you're a gu- you're a gun owner. Like ch- I could see like in his mind, it was changing his perspective of me a little bit or making him think like, oh, my gosh, you're 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 going full right winger and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, dude, no, 
part of me buying a gun and going and shooting it at the range and stuff like that is becoming comfortable with the tool I bought. It's if I, if you know, if I couldn't go downstairs right now at, I'm living at my parents' house right now because COVID's led to a lot of weird situations this year. Yes, it has. So don't, if, if you're in a similar situation with me where you had to, you know, whatever, swallow your pride. No, you're we not alone. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I couldn't go downstairs and use certain power tools without asking my dad, Hey dude, how do I use this? You know, I want to do some yeah. art on the driftwood you've collected or whatever. Um, I, I would just, I just, same thing with the gun. I, I brought it home that first day and I tried to figure out how to load it and whatnot. And I got too scared that I was going to do something stupid yeah. and blow up a shell, which sounds ridiculous to anybody who owns a gun, but that those were the, the, the scared thoughts I had. I sat with that cop, learned about my gun, asked him the dumb questions about ways I could mess things up or do this or that. And it, at the end of the day, I walked away feeling a lot more comf comfortable knowing like, okay, as long as I do these certain things, it's, it's safe. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's just it. Like so many people get caught up in their fear and then they, they just believe whatever they think and feel about something where it's like, don't you want to learn to overcome your fears? Don't you want to yes. not be afraid of heights? Don't you want to all that kind of stuff? And I've always been, I've always been afraid of heights, but I've also tried to challenge myself to find safe ways to go higher in life. Yeah. I think it's important to challenge yourself in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of them, like, and challenge. And I think that's a great thing about what you're wanting to do here is like challenge people's perspectives, because I think people do get, you want to challenge your perspectives because it's really easy. And I have friends who live here in Portland who, when I talk to them about the viewpoints from, you know, people I know who live, who grew up in, I grew up in a more rural area. Like there are drastic just differences in the way they view life. And if a person has never really like lived in that environment or been around people like that, they are quick to make big assumptions. I mean, we mm -hmm. see it right now. We see it like, oh, well, if you are supporting this, you're a racist. That must be it. Yep. And it's just, I, I tried to explain, even back in the last election, I tried to explain, and I didn't vote for Trump. And I tried to explain, though, to a friend, well, I, you have to understand, I understand why people voted for Trump. And it's not because they're racist, and it's not because they hate anyone. In fact, they probably don't really like Trump that much. But their, <laughs> their options were a person who really, really believed things that they were like morally against. And so you were telling them the only option is to vote for that person yep. or you're a racist. Yep. And it's like an intellectual dishonesty that's hard for people to deal with. And I think if you can start to actually take yourself out and give yourself a new perspective on how other people are thinking, you might understand decisions that people make. Now that's not to say that it justifies every decision like everyone makes if somebody murders someone i don't care what his perspective was you know what i mean yeah. like he might have had an interesting perspective but in the end it resulted in something that was wrong no matter what right. but i think that i think that it's good to challenge yourself and challenge, like i'm going to make myself look at the way that that person views things and see if i can understand it see if i can make myself view things from the way they view view it and it may not change my mind but at least i'll start to understand why they make the decisions the way they make them well i part of that too is like 
I know when I was younger, I was very emotional when I would have conversations about politics. And I'm, I'm sure I was the problem in that, in that situation because I was making it hard to have a conversation because I let my emotions get so wrapped into it. And even if you don't think your emotions are getting wrapped up into it, um, sometimes your body language, like if you're hunch, like I've had people tell me before, like, dude, stop hunching over when you're mm-hmm. talking and talking to me. And like, I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry. But like, so <laughs> that that's been a spiritual aspect of getting deeper into the, the supposed dichotomies, uh, that separate us in, in our politics and whatnot. And, and as I've, learned more and more and had conversations more and more with people about what they think and asking them questions. And you know, what's amazing is when you start asking people questions, they're way more willing to listen to you too. Yeah. Like if you give somebody that breadth that then they're willing to just kind of sit back and be like, Oh, I, well, they let, they listen to me. This, this guy's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, um, one point I was trying to get to earlier about the living in the city or living in the rural thing that I think a lot of people need to understand in regards to the gun ownership thing is like Mm -hmm. a lot of people want to just say like, you don't need guns, you know, guns only bring violence and stuff like this. And they don't like the talking point that, well, if you outlaw guns, the only people who are going to have guns are outlaws. And it's like a lot of people just think that, Oh, that's a good convenient talking point, but it's like, no, it's, it's real. If, if you outlaw guns and you don't let good people protect themselves from other people who have those things, the bad people aren't going to care about the laws. They'll go get a gun and yeah. they'll come take advantage of you. Um, and, and most, gun, most gun crimes are committed by people who did not illegally obtain that gun. So it's not like they were a good person who followed all the rules to get the gun. And then they committed a crime. They were the bad person who found a way to get a gun. And then they committed a crime with it. Which that's that eh, point made. Um, the, <laughs> the, 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 finally getting to my, to my main point about this, about just self-protection and whatnot. When you live out in the country, it's 15, 20, 30 minutes away from whoever might be able to come help you. If you can, if you, if you have the means to make a phone call and whatnot, and whereas if you live in the city, yeah, you do have neighbors. If yes, you scream, somebody might hear you. If you if you can get out of your window and run to your neighbor, your neighbor's right there. And or you know, if you scream, your neighbor might be able to run over and help you. All these different things. It's like it's, you know, even it's even the same thing with like vehicle ownership. Like you have people who are like, well, all we need is a tiny little super efficient vehicle. Yeah. I live in the city. All I need is a tiny little super efficient vehicle, but my buddy who lives, you know, out in the mountain, no, he needs a truck. Like he needs a pickup truck. He needs four wheel drive because you never know when he's coming out and there's conditions that he can't drive down his little road. And he needs it because to be able to maintain his land, he needs a pickup truck. So it's like where he lives and his lifestyle is like, dictates what his needs are and like i agree with you it's the same thing with a gun like a person who lives out in the in like in a rural area has a different relationship with gun ownership just because of the environment they live in 
Uh, man, we could go down so many different pathways right now, and I would actually love to, but I, <laughs> we're also getting like close to an hour and a half on this podcast, and um, I can't ask you to monopolize, monopolize your time. Um, but there's also th- one of the bigger conversations I would like to get into that I think yeah. we would have a lot of uh, things that we might agree on or, or have interesting conversations about is just regulations and how those are sometimes used to facilitate corruption. And Mm -hmm. you would think that having regulations on things or requiring certain things like property taxes that they tell you are, oh yeah, that that pays for your fire and your police and all this kind of stuff. It's like, you can use other forms of taxation if you really think that we need to tax people to, and you think it's legitimate and the right thing to do. There's other ways to pay for those protection things that you think that we need. but also, man, the, the deeper I get into life, I'm sorry, like it it really is up to you to to make your decisions for your health, not your doctor. Okay. Yeah. If you're not if you're not your own doctor, you're a fool. That's what Hippocrates said. Mm-hmm. Which the doctors all take the Hippocratic oath yeah. to and do no harm. And then they don't really do the research on the things that they prescribe people. So it's absolutely insane. Um, but People just ride that wave. Um, is there, I guess, uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about politics wise or um, I've, man, I've taken up way too much of your time. So I don't want to actually ask you to get in too deep of a religious yeah. spirituality I mean, conversation. Well, you can ask me whatever you want. I'm fine. I, I uh, like politics, man. I could go forever uh, because like you, like I could, the regulation thing, my viewpoint is that there shouldn't be any regulations. And that's a whole, you know, long conversation about how that works. Um, and how, you know, taxation, why does it exist? Does it need to exist? Why can't I just pay for what I want? And that's obviously, it's that's another hard, it's a, it's a thing that we have learned to live with and learn to, uh, you know, well, that I don't think people have learned to live with it. I think people are indoctrinated or they're born yeah. into a system where they don't ever think about it because when you get when you start your first job, all that stuff just gets taken out. And you think mm-hmm. and you're told you're told by everybody around you, no, this is to pay for things that help keep us safe. And this is to pay for things to make sure that when you're old and you can't work, that you do have money because you've paid into the system and all those kind of things. And like good narratives, brother, good narratives. But is it really, is that really what all the money's being used for? Is that, I I just don't know. And and then it's like, I don't support wars, foreign wars. I don't ever want a a dollar that I'm giving to anybody to go towards a foreign war that's going to result in some young kid getting convinced to go kill some other young kid in some other country when both of them should just be sitting at home playing video games for crying out loud. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the problem is if you don't have, direct choice of where your money goes, it's going to go somewhere that you don't want it to go. All right, brother. I'm going to transition us quickly into religion so that we can just have a a short conversation there. If you're groovy with that, Um, Matthew, what's your spiritual journey been like through your life? Did you grow up with certain beliefs and have they changed over time? Uh, I was raised in a pretty traditional, uh, like evangelical Christian household, which I mean, fits with a lot of the, you know, political leanings and stuff. And I think, uh, as I've grown and as I've gotten older, where I've seen a lot of my friends 
you see a lot of people rebel against their their faith. Uh, my rebellion didn't come in a in a sense of not um, not believing it anymore. My rebellion came in from the side of things where I actually probably became more hardcore and believed it more and realized how messed up a lot of our organized religion is in this world where when you see what people who put themselves forth as the church are proclaiming proclaiming to believe in the way they act and what the bible says a person who is who is claiming those beliefs is supposed to act they were two drastically different things and so there's a long period of time where i didn't really attend any kind of church because it's hard to go to church and see a pastor telling you something and be able to look into the book that you're supposed to be using as your guidebook and see him contradicting the things that are said there. Um, and then not like, but you're the pastor, you're the one who's supposed to be the expert on this and you're a kid. And how are you supposed to tell him that he's not doing the right thing? And you learn as you get older and you, you do your research as in a lot of things, Oh, you weren't an idiot. Like, you are able like to be a thinking human being who can see the the contradictions. And I think there's so many contradictions and I mean, we can see it in organized religion. I mean, organized religion has been used to commit some of the greatest atrocities uh, on earth. But I think unfortunately that blinds people to the fact that there's actually really great like truth and joy and hope in the basic tenets of, of, Christianity. It's just that that word and that name has been used for a lot of really terrible things. And so I I think that my belief system is pretty pretty simple, but I I realize that it is not simple to a lot of people because I don't I don't like the idea that my faith means I have to politically believe a certain thing. Or that my faith means that I have to, you know, agree 100% with another person's, you know, viewpoints on stuff. But I, I, I believe that my faith is all about, like, me being a bad person, because we all make mistakes, me doing bad things, and me finding forgiveness and salvation. Uh, and if I can find that, then other people can find that too. And if I can find it and didn't necessarily deserve it, then I should give that forgiveness to other people as well, because I was given it when I didn't deserve it. There's that, uh, there's that phrase that I don't know if it's Buddhist or is it namaste? The, yeah. I, I bow to the divine in you. Um, like it's recognizing ourselves in each other and, mm -hmm. and, and I'm just kind of sharing right now, but like, it's, I know that the, the more I learn to love myself spiritually to be, uh, at peace with the things I don't know with being wrong about things with, it, it's hard sometimes to think about some of these things where we're like judging ourselves too much because there's a big part of me that thinks like, don't be too hard on yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, because if you're being hard on yourself, then you're going to be hard on other people too. And you have to be forgiving of yourself and the fact that you make mistakes 
But you better sure if you're going to do that for yourself, you better sure as heck do that for other people. And all this really, the more spiritual I get, the more I come to that whole perspective of like living in the moment and realizing like, okay, what am I going to do right now? Um, That doesn't mean that I don't evaluate. Like there are times, how do I put this? You, you do need no one to shut up like um, you because there are corrupt systems out there that will take advantage of you. There yes. are corrupt people out there that will take advantage of you. Um, and it's you got to build that discernment. I, and the only way to really do a lot of that stuff is to often make the mistake of putting your faith into something and then realizing that you got duped. Mm-hmm. And and I've been duped a lot. That's why I have such a a. a very odd prismatic perspective of the world and why I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I know anything, but I know a lot of stuff and I read a lot of stuff yeah. and that may sound, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not putting my, putting my perspective out there as well as I would like to, but um, I, there's a piece of mine now in not knowing things, whereas, and being way okay with it, Whereas in the past, I was so obsessed with knowledge and wanting to know stuff that I would get anxiety about the idea that I don't know everything, which yes. sounds stupid because it is. No, I think it's a, that's a good attitude to have. I mean, even like the Bible talks about like being like the folly of being arrogant that you have all of the knowledge, right? That you, well, I've got to figure it out. And like there's there's so such great folly in having that attitude because as soon as you decide that you have got to figure it out and know so much better than the next person, like you are just going to stick your foot in it eventually because that you're just setting yourself up to realize that there's always someone who will understand something a little better than you or have a little bit of knowledge that you don't have and to not like let yourself be open. And that's why for me, like I would need a reference point. And I've decided in my life that the Bible is the reference point. Like that's what my reference point is. And so it's, it's a comfort because I can like start to like be like, how do I feel about this? How do I feel, you know, or I'm hearing this thing, I'm feeling conflicted and I can come back to a reference point and say, here's what I feel comfortable with. And this, like, this is what I, this is what I think the truth is. And so it allows me freedom to like to pursue things and to like teach myself things and learn things and then have a, like a, a reference point in the same way that like if you're swimming in the ocean, like you have a reference point of there's my boat, right? You would never want to just start swimming in the ocean without a reference point because you get lost. Right. Eventually you'd find yourself too, too far out. I feel like that's my reference point that I can, like if I'm not strained from that reference point, there's so much stuff in the world that I can experience and learn and feel comfortable and don't feel like I need to be the expert or, or authority on it because in the end, someone is always going to know more than me on something. I can, I can, uh, I think that all sounds awesome. Um, is there anything else from a uh, religious perspective or a spiritual perspective that you would like to share, brother? Man, I just, you know, I think that 
I, I hope that people in this world will, through this time of real weird uncertainty, not use their religious beliefs and their faith as an excuse to hate someone. That's my, I think that's like the last thing that anyone who is religious in any way, but especially people who want to be, a, who say they're a Christian, say that they, one of the most disturbing things in the world to me, and you, we've all seen it, is throughout all political discussions that every side wants to say, well, this is what Jesus would have done, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you think Jesus would be a Republican? Yeah, you think Jesus would be a Democrat? And I just think, like, we got to take that out of it because the reality is, is you'd be real shocked. Like, we believe that God is, like, Jesus is a king of kings, so he wouldn't be a Democrat or a Republican. He would be, he's supposed to be the person that we're, we're looking to for our leadership. So I think that, uh, like, I, one of my things I, I dislike the most about politics is when people try to decide to manipulate you by saying as a believer this is what you like well jesus would have believed this well that's kind of creepy because like really jesus would have had like jesus would have voted for you know to fund a war in afghanistan like i i doubt it you know like yeah i just feel like that's not but i also think that i also think the problem with that is like how like who are we to put who are we to dictate what a deity would like right. would view like who are we like really i'm going to tell i think i got i i mean i'm not a god but i pretty <laughs> sure i know i'm pretty sure i know exactly like how he feels about this and i'm going to speak for him i feel comfortable doing it so i'm going to do it right now like i just think i think that people should follow the teachings and not try to put words in people's you know in the mouths of things that fit their desires and their their wishes I think um, if you are not, if people are not, uh, if there's conflict within you about stuff, then it's that's an examination of this, this the system you're living in, the uh, the environment you're living in in regards to your work, your the, the people you surround yourself in, the the different ways that you fuel your body, um, like if you are living in a system that's stressful all the time, then you're probably going to be less of the person that you want to be because you're constantly trying to overcome that stress. Now, is that merely a, a state of mind that you can overcome and you're, you're, o- you're overthinking things and, and telling yourself that things are bad when they're really not, or is it a legitimate thing where maybe you should look for employment in a different industry or may not that that's mm-hmm. easy this year. Like a lot of people. And and that's, that's where we would get more into the corruption or back into politics again, where it's like a lot of people are stuck in systems that just erode away at our souls and make it hard to be the best you and to care and to, to love yourself enough to love others in a give in that day or in that moment. And, well, you know, the, 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 like in the Bible, when somebody asked Christ, like, what's the most important commandment? Like, what's the most important rule? And the first one he said was love the Lord, your God with all your heart and soul. Like, that's the most important thing. Second thing was to love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of people will quote, love your neighbor, but it's supposed to be love your neighbor as yourself. So like, if I would want this for me, I should want it for my neighbor. 
And I think that like, and he says, that's everything. If you follow those two rules, then you follow every other rule because you can't possibly wrong a person if you are loving them as you love yourself. And that doesn't mean to just give your neighbor all your stuff and all that kind of crap. Of course not. Of course not. It just, it means, it means like mostly to not like, why would I harm that person? Why would I harm that person if I'm loving them? Like I love myself because I don't want to hurt myself, you know? Right. Or I'm not going to judge them any more harshly than I judge myself. Exactly. Those kind of things. Yeah. Um, all right, brother. Well, I'm going to move us into the final couple questions of the podcast that I like to ask everybody. And the first one is, uh, Matthew, what makes you happy or how do you maintain or find happiness? I just, I have a real good family. I have a wonderful wife and some amazing kids. And I feel like God has really blessed me with that. And I think the most content I've been in my life is when I learned to like really enjoy the things that God has provided me and not be obsessed with the next thing. And the, and I wanted to, I played, I play music, I play a lot of music. My whole family does. And that was my pursuit for a long time. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a professional musician. And there were times in my life where I was like, Oh, that's, that's not, that's not going to work out. And it was depressing. And then as soon as I like realized, but I have this like amazing family and this super, like my life is like amazing. Maybe not always like there's hard things in life, but like, I realized how blessed I am. Like it just, I've been more content in my life than I ever have been before. Radical. Uh, what are your hopes for the world or the future? Um, I just would hope that, I mean, in an unrealistic and unrealistic, because I just, I understand the realities of my belief system. I would hope that everyone would find the same salvation that I have. But in the long run, I hope that people would like find a way to like, love each other and care for each other. And if that isn't possible, I would, my hope is that we find ourselves in a system that hurts as few people as possible. And uh, final question. Do you have any other questions for me, brother? I, you know, I was actually thinking today about this, like what, like I, I wanted to have a really good uh, question, but I feel like you've, you're done such a good job of like, putting yourself out there recently. And I just wanted to tell you, I appreciate that. It's, it's uh, in a, in a world of basketball Twitter, where obviously there's a pretty dominant belief system hanging to one side. uh, I appreciate that you're willing to like start a conversation and start a like discussions that bring other voices into the mix. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Um, And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and doing this and sharing your perspective, because I think it's been awesome. Uh, I've had a good time. Good, man. Good. Um, But no, you've got a unique perspective and it's uh, I I just wish. Yeah, we're going to have to do another one sometime. I will just say that. I love it. Yeah, I'm cool. Hey, this is the year that the big blazer trade happens. And so we're going to have to talk (laughs) about the fact that they traded cj for lebron james and like he's gonna be here we all know it we know lebron james is gonna be on the blazers next year so (laughs) we're gonna have to talk about that um well i guess how did well how did we run into each other on twitter do you play fantasy yeah i think i think it's probably through fantasy basketball which okay do we know what's gonna like that's a new thing this year isn't it like fantasy basketball it's um 
Well, I mean, well, then do you do you have like a a, a a league with like hometown people that you play in, or how how do you kind of play fantasy? I usually do a few. I, like I never, I never spend money on it. You know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. not that kind of fantasy player. But I yeah. I have I usually play a few random leagues so that I can just play against weirdos I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I'm a weirdo too, so it fits. But then I yeah, then I have one league that's like my it's like friends it's like half friends and half because people have dropped out like their friends so it's like a couple of guys i don't know and it's kind of cool yeah. to like have some and then we've been in the sleep for a long time like that's the only way i know them is their weird team name yeah uh and i'm a little annoyed because i like was winning this year like <laughs> handily <laughs> handily winning like thank you luka Doncic, for everything you've done for me ah. Um, but I was, yeah, so I'm a little, I'm a little bitter and I'm going in this season with a chip on my shoulder. Do you remember where you had to draft him? I took him in the first round because it was a, it's a keeper league. Okay. And I had, for the last few years I had drafted, I had my first round draft pick was, uh, Durant. And I just decided, I decided this is the year to, this was the year to give up on him. Okay. Uh, Cause I didn't want to hold him for a year. Right. I didn't yeah. want to sit yeah. on him for a year. So I went Luca in the first round and I was like, this is a chance that this is like real. So how is he available then? Do you guys only get to keep people for like so many years? We only keep three people. Okay. So somebody was dumb. Wow. Someone was dumb and dropped him. And I was like, and I had the, I had the, I don't even think I, here's the thing. I didn't have the first pick. So somebody let him go. You lucky son of a gun. Yeah, somebody let him go. And I was like, <laughs> I was like two or three this year. And so people passed him by and I took him. And I was like, I didn't think I, I was I needed a point guard really bad. So I was like looking at these things. And I'm like, Luca's like it was like between somebody and Luca. And I'm like, Luca's not gonna get to me. And then the other guy went. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna draft Luca. And then it did wow. It, it paid dividends. That's just wild. That's the craziest thing that's been said on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not a, I will say this is not a league of idiots. Like usually people are like, I never get who I want because people are smart in this yeah. league. They do a good job and oh. somebody just made a mistake. Rad. Congrats, man. Thank you. Um, well, that's something else for you that, that uh, can make you happy. Jeez. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. Cause I have a season, I have another season of Luca coming up. Well, cool, man. No, I mean, as, you know, as we get further away from the the election, I still want to have religious conversations and I'll still want to talk politics. But this this podcast will become a little bit more leaning towards basketball. Like we spent the first close to an hour here talking basketball and I loved great. it. And um, and like I'm OK if this podcast essentially becomes a, a basketball podcast for, uh, you know, during the season and then the off yeah. season, It's just like, all right, open the door. Let's have some weird conversations. Well, we happen um, to be in sort of the like, I mean, this is like light. This world right now is prime political discussion. Uh, it's prime for political discussion right now. But fortunately, we're hopefully to a point where basketball will be the thing that we can talk about the most. Well, and maybe, maybe this podcast is in some ways a way to show people too, like, different ways to consider having conversations. Like instead of asking contentious questions, ask questions that allow somebody else to share their perspective. And instead of asking questions that are so 
like a lot of times when you have a conversation with somebody out on the street, it's who did you vote for? Yes. I don't want to know because if we, we, (laughs) if we, if we label each other with who we voted for, then like you just have this paradigm expectation of everything that's going to come out of that person's mouth because we're gaslit so much about if you are on this side, you are all of this list of things. And if you're Mm -hmm. on that side, you're all this list of things. And it's like, and if you don't participate, well, then you're just, nobody likes you. I don't, I mean, I don't think a lot of people like, like there are a lot of people that I know and work with who wouldn't necessarily know what my political belief system is. And it's not because I'm hiding it's because I want them to know me for who I am, not because I think like we should end the fed. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> that's one thing that that's one of the reasons why I keep like a little bit of hope open for, for, uh, for the the orange man is because he actually talks crap to the fed on Twitter. And I'm just like, I'm like, you all don't understand how big of a deal that is Yeah. for, for the, for the leader of our politics to be saying, Hey, your economic system's crap, by the way, record high numbers, economic systems, crap, record high numbers. And it's like, hold on. So he can manipulate the system. That's just it. Calling him dumb too. Sorry. Calling him dumb. If you do not understand your enemy, you will never defeat him. No, it's yeah. You put you (sighs) you're you're letting him. You let a person get away with stuff if you just assume they're making decisions because they're they're dumb. Like you let them get away with things. Yeah. No. So, uh, well, hey man, thanks for doing this. Yeah, this was great. Uh, This is Matthew. You can find him on Twitter at Reverend Romulus. What what does that mean? Uh, I big Star Trek uh, fan. I am a big Star Trek fan. Thank you very much. Um, That's for the next podcast. Yes, it is. I'm ready to talk some deep uh, Star Trek uh, conversations. Um, but no, it actually was just. I also am a history guy, and I was just a, it's a Roman Empire reference, and so which is why it's a Star Trek reference because the Romulans were the Roman Empire. Oh, whoops, got nerdy all of a sudden. Wow. Here. Oh, no, I like it, brother. Uh, which, what's your favorite Star Trek uh, series? Of all I time? am a, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, man. Die hard. I'm going to have to bring on one end. of my I'm going to have to bring on one of my ex co-workers uh, at the beer garden. I worked at the last couple summers because her favorite show is out of the Star Trek mythology is Deep Space Nine. Whereas I I fell in love with uh TNG the next generation after it got I mean, put on it yeah there's just a lot of characters to fall in love with there. So who's your favorite uh Deep Space Nine character? I mean it's hard to wow you really love it. You had to think about this. You didn't yeah, come it... out with Cisco or whoever. No like it's hard to not love Cisco because the thing I love about Cisco is the actor is like insane, but he plays <laughs> this character who is really reserved most of the time. It's the same thing with the guy with with Patrick Stewart and Picard. Like he's a nutcase, but he played this really reserved. And so they got this actor who's crazy, so that when they do the episodes where like something happens and he goes wild, he just like goes full on drama kid, and it's incredible. Like. Uh, what's the name of the dude with the big ears? Quark. Quark. He's he probably Quark. ended up being my favorite character. Oh yeah, he's I love Quark. And you know what's funny is I watched it years ago, and I've watched it a few times since then. And I remember thinking, oh, this first see this first you know, the first like uh, 
season of it. It's not that strong. And now I'm like, I'm like, I, I literally just started rewatching it and I'm on like episode two or three. And I'm like, no, man, it's awesome from the get go. And Quark is awesome from episode one. Have you ever listened to any of the podcasts that go through like episode by episode or anything like that? No, I, that's, that's like the next step of nerdery. Yeah. That's, that's the, 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 uh, my friend that I worked with, she, she like, she would, when I asked her what podcast she listens to, she's like deep space nine podcast where they just talk about every episode with each, with each podcast episode and go through the whole series, which is cool. Yeah. I need to, what what kind of fan am I? (laughs) (laughs) But, um, if you are looking for hope in this dreary world, Star Trek The Next Generation is a very hopeful show. There's very yes, hopeful moments. Uh, there's probably like one episode per season or out of the seven seasons, there's like five episodes that I definitely cry every time I watch. And uh, no shame in it either. It's no. just very, very awesome episodes. Um, yeah, when uh, when Picard goes back home after beco- getting absorbed by the Borg and he's yes. fighting with his brother. Oh, goodness. I love the episode where Picard gets sucked into the probe and then lives the entire life. Like learns to play the flute and stuff. When he plays that song, I, Oh, Oh, I know it's so good. And like, I can imagine, like I can imagine when he wakes up and he's like, I just lived an entire lifetime. What happened in the last 18 minutes or whatever they say. And then, and then like one of the next episodes after that, there's that woman who comes on the ship who plays music. And it's like, he shares his music with her and yeah. that's, oh, yeah, it's so good. It's so good. We just lost a lot of listeners over the last, like, five minutes. Well, I wanted to end on something hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> Matt, you have an awesome night, brother. Yeah, you too. Thank you, sir. All Thank right, you man. for having me here. Yeah, dude. Well, I'll see you on Twitter. And uh, we'll, we'll again, we'll do this sooner than uh, later, I hope. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for... Uh, Everybody, thank you for listening to the Free Range Basketball Podcast. I'm Kyle McHugh, and you can find me on Twitter at RotoKyleNBA. And, uh, well, if you rate, review, subscribe, do any of that stuff, I'll really appreciate it. I don't really want to sell you anything right now. I just want to tell you I love you and have a good one and try not to stress out about things that you cannot control. We'll talk to you later, everybody. Peace. Bye, Matthew. Bye. Keep tugging at our heels, watch us high step and be a highlight reel of how high we get. The ghost riders off the ramp, how we live defies death. Put our conscience in the genre box, stamp a certified fresh. Bad boys beyond G depths. You couldn't fathom what we plan to do next. Turn the music on the head, power bomb.